Chapter 6 of Why We Love Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Mandrell. Why We Love Lincoln by James Creelman. Chapter 6. And now came the first great romance of Lincoln's life. He fell in love with pretty, auburn-haired Anne Rutledge, daughter of the owner of the tavern in which he lived. His passion seemed hopeless, for the slender maid of seventeen was pledged to a young man from New York. Yet Lincoln loved and waited and hoped. His studies had worn him to emaciation. His ill-fitting clothes hung loose on his ungainly figure. His face was thin, and his eyes sunken. He was poor, and a mere clodhopper. Still, he loved sweet little Anne Rutledge, even though all the village knew she was another's. And that love burned in him always. When her lover went away, promising to return, Lincoln was her watchful knight, serving and hoping. But the New Yorker did not come back. Anne Rutledge grew pale with waiting. It was evident that she was deserted. All New Salem knew it. Then Lincoln offered her his heart, and she consented, asking only time enough to write her lost lover. No answer to the letter came. Week after week passed, and then Lincoln was accepted. But alas, the strain had been too great, and the abandoned young beauty grew mortally ill. On her deathbed, she called for Lincoln continually and when he came, they left him alone with her for farewell. Afterwards, he went to her grave and wept like a child. My heart lies buried there, he said. Poor, honest, ugly Lincoln. That tragedy saddened his life, and years afterwards, he could not refer to Anne Rutledge without tears. So terrible was the effect of her death upon him, that for a time his friends feared for his reason. He would wander in the woods, a victim to despair. To a companion who urged him to forget his loss, he groaned, I cannot. The thought of the snow and rain on her grave fills me with indescribable grief. Finally he was taken to a friend's house, and there watched and comforted through days of deep torment, bordering on madness till he could bear to go out again among men. Lincoln went to the legislator at Vandalia in a coarse suit of jeans, but most of the Illinois lawmakers wore jeans and coonskin caps. It cannot be honestly said that he was a brilliant or important lawmaker, although his great height meant strength, quaint, sharp wit, and never-failing stories made him a popular figure at the state capitol. His mind was too much occupied with the study of the law. He had resumed an acquaintance, formed during the Black Hawk War, with Major John T. Stewart, who encouraged him to become a lawyer and loaned him books. Curiously enough, he seemed to desire no teacher, but followed his course of studies alone. Self-reliance was his strongest trait, self-reliance and endless work. Those who attempt to account for Lincoln's remarkable rise in life are apt to overlook the terrific mental grind 
to which he subjected himself for so many years. And, as we value most that which we get through stress and sacrifice and pain, so the things which Lincoln dug out of his books were never forgotten. Perhaps in these easy days, when education is pressed upon all, there is a lesson to be found in the story of this man who laid firm foundations for his afterlife of greatness by taking upon himself the whole responsibility for searching after sound knowledge and principles. Lincoln became Major Stewart's law partner, and for many years he alternated between petty lawsuits and his more profitable work as a surveyor. His sincerity, shrewd humor, fairness, and hearty handshaking qualities drew friends to him wherever he went. His long, almost ludicrous figure, with its trousers, short of the shoe-tops by several inches, his stooping shoulders and shriveled, sunken, melancholy face were not associated with the distinction, romance, and tragic dignity which history has given to all that belongs to him. But his very spraddling awkwardness, the picturesque vernacular in which he told his countryside parables, coarse and satirical, Though they sometimes were, the humble spirit in which the lawyer, surveyor, politician would do odd jobs or chores to help a neighbor or earn a dollar gave him added political strength with a frontier people who loved plain men. He does not understand Lincoln, who thinks of him as a guileless, innocent frontiersman, raised by accident from a log cabin to direct a mighty war and shape the policy of a nation. He was a sagacious, observant, natural politician, ambitious but honest. His law partner, Mr. Herndon, has made that plain. Oris White, who knew Lincoln in his days of political campaigning, has written of him. He was as ambitious of earthly honors as any man of his time. Furthermore, he was an adept at log-rolling or any political game that did not involve falsity. Nobody knew better how to turn things to advantage politically, and nobody was readier to take such advantage, provided it did not involve dishonorable means. He could not cheat the people out of their votes any more than out of their money. The Abraham Lincoln that some people have pictured to themselves, sitting in his dingy law office, working over his cases till the voice of duty roused him, never existed. If this had been his type, he never would have been called at all. It helps one to realize the man who afterwards roused the soul of the Republic to resist the degradation of slavery and the shock of war, to read what he wrote from Washington to Mr. Herndon in 1848. Now, as to the young men, you must not wait to be brought forward by the older men. For instance, do you suppose that I should ever have gotten to notice if I had waited to be hunted up and pushed forward by older men? You, young men, get together 
and form a rough and ready club, and have regular meetings and speeches. Take in everybody that you can get. As you go along, gather up the shrewd, wild boys about town, whether just of age or just a little under. Let everyone play the part he can play best. Some speak, some sing, and all halloo. And in 1836, we catch sight of Lincoln, again a candidate for the legislator, leaping forward with flashing eyes to answer a taunt of a Mr. Forker, who had a lightning rod on his new house, and had just left the Whig party for a place in the land office. I desire to live, and I desire place and distinction, but I would rather die now than like the gentleman live to see the day that I would change my politics for an office worth $3,000 a year, and then feel compelled to erect a lightning rod to protect a guilty conscience from an offended God. Yes, Lincoln was a politician who could seize your attention by the very witchery of his grotesque personality, twist his opponent into helplessness by the stinging shrewdness of a humorous story, make you laugh or cry alternately, reach down into your humanity by some frank confession of his poverty and rough beginnings, and then suddenly stir the highest instincts of your nature by a sublime moral appeal. It is true that in his second term, in the legislature, he voted for all manner of extravagant and preposterous schemes of internal improvements. But that was a day of inflated hope, and Illinois was delirious with land gambling. Lincoln, like the other politicians of the state, was swept along by the current of popular enthusiasm. He swaggered, dreamed, bragged, and voted with the rest. The voters wanted railways, canals, and river improvements. So the legislator authorized 1,300 miles of railways, a canal between the Illinois River and Lake Michigan, and endless improvements of rivers and streams. And to carry out this staggering program of improvements in a poor, half-settled frontier state, a loan of $12 million was voted. Not only did Lincoln in his early life vote for this audacious and spendthrift scheme in response to a harebrained popular demand, but he advocated women's suffrage, proposed a usury rate with the naive suggestion that, in cases of extreme necessity, there could always be found means to cheat the law, wrote foolish love letters to blue-eyed Mary Owens, offering to keep his supposed marriage engagement to her but advising her, for her own sake, not to hold him to it, and developed into a more or less ranting, downright country politician, ready to make a stump speech, tell a story, shake hands with a crowd, or thrash a ruffian on the slightest provocation. And when the capital of Illinois was changed to Springfield, he rode into that town on a borrowed horse, with two saddlebags containing two or three law books and a few pieces of clothing, and not having seventeen dollars with which to buy a bed and furnishings, 
accepted a free room over the store of his friend. Mr. Speed dropped his saddlebags on the floor and smilingly said, Well, Speed, I'm moved. That was his entrance into the town, which saw his rise to the presidency. Around the fireplace in Speed's store, Lincoln used to sit with Douglas, Baker, Calhoun, Browning, Lamborn, and other rising politicians and orators of the West. Here, every question under heaven was debated. Stories were told, jokes cracked, poems recited, and it would take the pen of a Balzac to describe the scenes of merriment or serious sharp contest. That happened before those blazing logs, with an attentive ring of friends listening to the never-ceasing flow of wit and wisdom. Again and again, Lincoln was elected to the Illinois legislature, always as a Whig, yet he remained humble in spirit. In answer to the taunt that the Whigs were aristocrats, he made a speech showing that he understood how the political sympathies of the West were to be won. I was a poor boy, hired on a flatboat at eight dollars a month, and had only one pair of breeches to my back, and they were buckskin. Now, if you know the nature of buckskin when wet and dried by the sun, it will shrink, and my breeches kept shrinking until they left several inches of my legs bare between the tops of my socks and the lower part of my breeches, and whilst I was growing taller, they were becoming shorter, and so much tighter that they left a blue streak around my legs that can be seen to this day. If you call this aristocracy, I plead guilty to the charge. He could out-wrestle, out-run, and out-talk any man in his section. He was recognized as the most skillful and hard-headed politician in his state. His courage and shrewdness in ordinary affairs were notable, and his honesty and earnestness, sweetened by a sure sense of humor, lent distinction and dignity to a ridiculous figure and sometimes theatrical manner of address. Yet there was a strange, gloomy, self-distrust in Lincoln, which showed itself in his love affairs, an imaginative melancholy that wrung his heart and tortured his mind with baseless, shadowy misgivings. He engaged himself to marry Mary Todd, and doubting his own love, broke the engagement. It has been even charged that he deserted her when she was attired for the wedding. Lincoln described his parting to Mr. Speed. When I told Mary I did not love her, he said, she burst into tears, and almost springing from her chair, and wringing her hands as if in agony, said something about the deceiver being himself deceived. To tell you the truth, Speed, it was too much for me. I found the tears trickling down my own cheeks. I caught her in my arms and kissed her. So great was Lincoln's agony and depression after this that he was watched by his friends, lest he might commit suicide. I am now the most miserable man living, he wrote to Major Stewart. 
If what I feel were distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. The shadow of the threatened insanity passed, and within two years, Mary Todd became his wife. It was a singular chest of fate that he should have won her away from Stephen A. Douglas, who was yet to be his rival in the great anti-slavery struggle that was ended only by millions of armed men. Poor, heart-torn, shrewd, foolish, humble, sublime Lincoln. Then there was the duel with James Shields. That hot-headed Irishman had challenged Lincoln to fight because the tall politician had written certain anonymous letters for the Springfield Journal. Lincoln accepted and named Calvary broadswords of the largest size. The duelists went to the place appointed by the river and sat on logs on opposite sides of the field. Here is a description of the scene by an onlooker from Miss Tarbell's Life of Abraham Lincoln. I watched Lincoln closely while he sat on his log, awaiting the signal to fight. His face was grave and serious. I could discern nothing suggestive of old Abe as we knew him. I never knew him to go so long without making a joke, and I began to believe he was getting frightened. But presently he reached over and picked up one of the swords which he drew from its scabbard. Then he felt along the edge of the weapon with his thumb, like a barber feels of the edge of his razor, raised himself to his full height, stretched out his long arms, and clipped a twig from above his head with the sword. There wasn't another man of us who could have reached anywhere near that twig, and the absurdity of that long-reaching fellow fighting with cavalry sabers with shields, who could walk under his arm, came pretty near making me howl with laughter. After Lincoln had cut off the twig, he returned the sword to the scabbard. Before the combat could begin, friends arrived in a canoe. Shields was induced to make a concession, and presently Lincoln and his opponent returned to town fast friends. End of chapter 6